Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. I'm Leah Parody, professor of history at Slippery Rock University and co-host of Lies Agreed Upon, a partner podcast of the New Books Network about how Hollywood uses history to talk about today. I'm speaking with Peter Hughes, the author of A History of Love and Hate in 21 Statues, published in 2021 by Orem. Dr. Hughes has a PhD in philosophy and is also a member of the British Psychological Society. He has worked with various populations in crisis and has written widely on a number of subjects. Welcome, Peter. It's good to be talking to you today. Thanks very much, Leah. It's my pleasure to be here. So A History of Love and Hate in 21 Statues uh, spans millennia and the globe, Um, and it's a particularly timely book, uh, the ongoing debates surrounding public commemoration, particularly in the form of statues and the names of streets and buildings, has become more heated over the past few years. So so first of all, as we get started, I'd, I'd like to just ask you, you know, given that you've explored this topic in, in great detail, why do you think the questions surrounding public forms of commemoration and, and validation have, have been so much a focus of the public's attention recently? I think that's a great question. And and first, we need to put a bit of historical context. I think that that public memorials and, and, and statues have, have always been a bone of contention. I mean, my, my book goes way back to ancient Egypt and perhaps uh, one of the greatest female rulers of the ancient world, uh, the Pharaoh Hatshepsut, and, uh, and right up to the present day. And, and, uh, and that demonstrates really that there's been these struggles over identity, struggles over power, struggles over over um, public memorials for for thousands of years, and and they tend to rise up and flare up at times where social divisions tend to increase. So, there's a historian in the UK who wrote a great book called Black and British called David Olasuga, and and um, and he made the observation that that generally he would walk around towns and cities, he wouldn't even notice the statues; they just kind of sit there in the background. And I I certainly agree with that. I'm no great uh, admirer or, or decrier of, of, of statues as such. They just sit there in the background of our lives. We walk through our towns and cities and they're there. And then suddenly some division comes up, usually between various identity groups and and or an event happens. In this case, it was the killing of George Floyd that really precipitated a wave of iconoclasm, not just in the United States, but also throughout many particularly Western countries. And, and then we're forced really to address the issues that that throws up. And and uh, and you had extraordinary scenes all over the world, like in in my country, uh, uh, the UK. Although there was only one statue, as far as I'm aware, that was actually forcibly taken down, the police needed to put cordons around many others, including the statue of Winston Churchill. And there was one brilliant um, anecdote, actually, of, of a, there's a small old market town in the Midlands called Nuneaton, and uh, and near there there was. Uh, 
uh, a group of people there was a, who wanted to tear down a statue associated with colonialism in one way, shape or form. And, but another group of people came to protect another statue in the town and unknown to them, and she didn't know who she was, it was the statue of the, the novelist George Eliot. And so they obviously were surrounding this statue to protect it from iconoclasts and, and, and without necessarily knowing who the statue was about or what her significance was. But the very fact that it was a statue meant they had to defend it. And, uh, and I think that goes to reflect really how divisive and, and how blind very often our impulses can become. And, and my book really is interested in how we become divided and, and what makes us venerate some icons and hate others and tear them down. And one minute we, we ignore them and the next minute they jump into the forefront of our lives and we have to say, right, that has to come down. It's, it's oppressive. And other people say, no, we have to defend it. How dare you? It's our heritage. And uh, and then that's how how things um, divide. There was a there was a, a really interesting quote made by a woman called Sophia Nelson. She's a, a black American woman and commenting on Confederate statues. She's a she's a journalist and a writer and commenting on American statues. And she said, uh, "I don't fear." She said, "150 year old statues of dead white men. What I fear is the hatred we are seeing in real time." in 2021, on social media, she said, on our college campuses, in our workplace, and in our political rhetoric. And, and, and there really is the kernel of the debate. For some people, what matters is how do we keep ourselves together now? For others, is how do we make ourselves accountable for the past? And that really is a fault line. It's a psychological fault line. And, and my book really explores a lot of the psychology really behind that kind of behavior, and which, of course, is ultimately fascinating because, as maybe we'll discuss later on, much of it is is wrapped up in, in status displays. And, uh, and but that's maybe we can come on to that later. Yes, yes. I mean, it's an it's it's an interesting idea, even uh, thinking that we uh, separate those two things out, that, uh, you, you know, that uh, we either will be uh, will venerate or will be tolerant. Uh, and perhaps the question perhaps as we can get on to is, is it uh, is it the case that if we continue to venerate, then it's very difficult to uh to foster tolerance, um, one of the things that you uh, that I want to make sure that our listener, listeners uh, understand is uh, really the the wide range of statues that uh, that you talk about. Uh, they range widely in terms of time, location, personage. You cover everything from the Bamiyan Buddhas to the first prime minister of Canada, who, as a Canadian, I can say is a pretty boring person. Um, given how many possible candidates you had to choose from, what made you select this particular collection of statues? Was there an overarching theme or a, a litmus test that helped you to narrow down your choices? Yes, there was. And, and two things. First was violence. So each one of the statues in the book was taken down violently. So they were, and many of the chapters, almost all the chapters begin with an account of the destruction of the, the, the statues. And some of them, of course, are particularly bloody. I mean, you know, and, and, and the idea behind that type of graphic description of the destruction of statues 
is because, as one commentator said about the destruction of the statue of Ed, the slave trader Edward Colston in Bristol in the UK, it could have been a human being they were dragging along the ground. And one of the statues, for example, the, the statue of Emperor Nero, which was um, um, discovered at the beginning of the 20th century in a in a in a river in a riverbed and and uh, and was violently hacked and the researchers were able to work out how it was beheaded and these statues were literally mutilated and there's one statue in particular which was the statue of Athena from Palmyra which was which was mutilated twice uh, once by Christians in the fourth century to black-robed zealots, as I call them, who came out of the desert and mutilated the statue and left her face down in the desert stands. And then in 2015, a second time by another bunch of black-robed zealots, the ISIS fighters who came into um, the, the ancient city of Palmyra and mutilated, mutilated her again, what was left of her. And, and so you have uh, throughout the book this unity in all the statues of of this violence, really, that accompanies their destruction. So that was one thing that determined which statues got in the book. And the other was I wanted a geographical spread. They they would go from, you know, all, all different parts of the world. So this isn't a uniquely Western phenomenon or a contemporary phenomenon. There's sometimes too much of a, a tendency in our in our own culture to imagine that history started 10 years ago, you know, that, 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 that actually that, 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 that the roots of this kind of pathological behavior are very deep. They're deep in our history and they're also deep in our genetic history and they're deep in our history as a species. And so I wanted to reflect that. And, um, and also I wanted to reflect the diversity really of the statues. Some are men, some are women and ones of an indigenous Aboriginal warrior. Another one is, is the great abolitionist and um, Frederick Douglass. Another is of a slave trader like Edward Colston or a Confederate monuments, which really were, were, were designed really to, to glorify the, uh, the, 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 the South and the, uh, the, the antebellum South. And, and so we, we have this, this, this very wide range of statues, and it shows how ubiquitous this kind of behavior is because what it really boils down to is those whom we love, we will tolerate and we will be generous towards. But the deeper our love, the deeper our hate. So in psychologically, you can put it like this. There is a strong correlation between high degrees of empathy and, and high degrees of cruelty. So if you have strong, and this has been really demonstrated by a number of psychological studies, but the basic principle of this is if you have a strong empathy towards an in-group, then you are, and the deeper that empathy goes, the more likely you are to have visceral hatred of people who are part of the out-group. Which is why, for instance, on social media, regardless of whether you're coming from the right or the left or the, the, the you know, whatever side of these debates you were on, it's quite common to see somebody hurling insults at somebody. Hateful, I hope you die. I hope your children die. Then hashtag empathy. And, and there is no conflict. There is no psychological conflict between that. And we see that psychology in the destruction of statues that those whom we venerate, those whom we love, we say, let them stand. Those whom we hate, tear them down. But not just tear them down, let's mutilate them. Let's decapitate them. Let's cut off their limbs. Let's throw them into a harbour. Let's humiliate them. Because really, it's a kind of vicarious humiliation of those we consider to be our ideological enemies. Well, that's really interesting because it also suggests to me that those who feel that no empathy or love has been directed towards them 
from the group represented in the statue, that then also um, means that the statue is sort of standing in for the perpetrators of the hate that is felt by uh, a, a group of people who who have been sort of on the outs, and 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 maybe that takes us to to the next question, which is that you you know in your range of statues, um, they have a really broad range of meaning for the people who encountered them every day before their destruction, um, and so. You know, in doing your research and thinking through these processes, what did you note about, for example, the relationship between the community and a statue that had been erected, you know, centuries before or decades before or only a few years before its destruction? You you quoted uh, uh, the historian who you know, says all of these gray and boring statues that I walk past and I sort of don't note them, that, that you know, does that have any kind of, a, of um, a correlation to sort of how long the statue's been there, uh, what the makeup of the community is now versus what it was when it was erected? You know, I'm, I'm just curious about what, what you find about those, those um, uh, components of the, of the dynamic. No, I don't think it has any bearing on how long the statue's been there. It has a bearing on where contemporary culture and politics are. Um, so, you know, uh, some statues have been objects of contention from the moment they came up. The slave trader Edward Colston, for example, in Bristol in the UK, being one of those, he was at the top of the Royal African Company and he was responsible for the for the transportation and death of thousands of, of black Africans. And, and um, But this is what's curious about people like that. He also devoted in his will, his legacy, was to devote all his money to philanthropic causes. And, and we have this in, in human beings, that, that none of us are, are either wholly evil or wholly good. And you see it among the robber barons, for instance, people like Andrew Carnegie, you know, who would you know, exploit his workers in, in, in one instance, actually uh, sanctioning their killing. And, and he'd exploit their workers for every single cent they earned. And then he would, he would go and devote his profits to building libraries and, and, and facilities for the poor. And, and, and so human beings are, uh, are, are nuanced. And, and, and this is a, a key point that comes up in the book. And there are two particular really interesting points here. One is that, that I, I talk about uh, uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Junior, when he when when he said he said there's some of the best in the worst of us and there's some of the worst in the best of us and 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 when you can take that kind of nuanced perspective that makes you truly human it makes you capable of compassion because it's very difficult to hate from that kind of position and to give you another idea in this case of a black African who of course was celebrated for his campaign against apartheid Nelson Mandela um, when he came out of prison, he put his name to 10 scholarships and he called them the Mandela Rhodes Scholarships. Now, Cecil Rhodes was a white supremacist and, and, and he devoted his, his, his life really to amassing uh, a fortune through often very brutal and, and, and violent colonial behavior. He was, there's a whole campaign in, in this country to topple statues of Cecil Rhodes called Rose Must Fall. It began in, 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 as a campaign in, in, in South Africa, yet Nelson Mandela puts his name to a scholarship. And you just think, well, why, why would he do that? And, and he said, we have to stop, said Mandela, the circle of hate. We have to close the circle. 
because we, we, we just can't go on putting evil all in one camp and good all in another. Because going back to Martin Luther King, there's some of the best in the worst of us and some of the worst in the best of us. And when facing what to do with apartheid statues in post-apartheid South Africa, um, Mandela, some of the most egregious ones were removed, some were reinterpreted, and some were left standing. But the idea was, and he said this, there were some people, he said, who were villains to us, who were heroes to other people. There are some people who are heroes to other people who are villains to us. We have to reconcile that. We have to find a way to pull ourselves together. And as one South African legislator at the time said, you can't heal old wounds by making new ones. And I, and I look at the cultural landscape, really, and so much of of, of meaning and, and, and identity is wrapped up in the virulence with which we can demonize and hate those with whom we disagree. And in my experience, I've worked in often very violent circumstances in the past, and I've worked with extreme forms of conflict resolution. You can always find common ground, but you've got to take some risks and you have to concede something. And 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 this then f- throws on to another thing that's psychologically interesting, which is, um, uh, having mentioned the empathy-cruelty correlation, there's also a strong correlation between status and, and, and signaling one's virtue. And uh, and these are uh, these are uh, are very uh, deeply embedded, really, in our in our psychology, and they're deeply embedded in our biology as well as in our history and our and our culture. And 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 so sometimes by where where victimhood and virtuous victimhood can one can accrue. There's a wonderful study published in the Journal of Psychology, Social Psychology in 2020, which found this correlation between virtuous victimhood and the gaining of two types of reward. One was material rewards. You might get more money, more funding, more educational opportunity. But the key one was symbolic rewards, which was status, a sense of belonging, a sense of being loved, a sense of being validated. And of course, you only need to look at social media on all sides of the political divide, and 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 that is a that is a, 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 a extremely these technologies are extremely divisive, and they encourage us to become increasingly polarized, and and that polarization then results in in more acknowledgement and and and, and more and more um, more status, and so when we come to tear statues down, what are we really doing? You know, we walk past those statues for, for, for a long time. Why, why do they come down now? Even, even if we protest them, and I'm making no argument that all statues should stand. That's not what the book is about. I'm not coming up with it. These should stand or these should fall. Um, there's some statues I find particularly egregious, and, uh, and I've got no problem in saying that. Um, but what interests me is, is the, the bloodlust, really, that often lies behind mob violence. And a classic case in my book was the statue of Confucius, in 1966 in the Chinese city of Khufu. And uh, and this was at the beginning of the Cultural Revolution where the Red Guards, it was shortly after the first teacher had been murdered at one of the elite um, schools in, in Beijing. She was beaten to death with a spike club and her, and her, and her uh, body thrown in a garbage can. And the elite, and it was always the elite, this was an elite movement. It was a movement in elite educational institutions. And, and they broke into the, the ancestral home of Confucius in Khufu, and they destroyed lots of statues. They dug up some of Confucius's ancestors. They hung the bodies from a tree. One, 
One witness at the time complained about the stench of the of, of the bodies was still strong. They looted the graves of, of, of all sorts of children. They dragged Confucius. They reserved a special punishment for the statue of Confucius. They put a dunce's cap on it, which, of course, is mirroring the struggle sessions that were to be such a fundamental part of the Cultural Revolution, dragged his body through the streets, um, made his followers walk behind him as they as they beat them, and they, they also wore placards confessing their anti-revolutionary crimes. And then they eventually cast the statue of Confucius onto a fire. And, uh, and so this is where these kind of extreme degrees of allegiance um, and extreme degrees of exclusion take us. And what Mandela, what Martin Luther King uh, are asking us to do is just to pause. It might be a little more nuanced than we think. And let's rediscover our common humanity before we before we collapse everything. It's really interesting to think about the the uh, the sort of bloodlust that is associated with uh, inanimate objects and to see, to think of them as sort of these distillations in the imagination of those who are destroying them of, uh, so much, right. That, that they're, that they are, they're sort of, uh, they become these vessels for, um, uh, so much, uh, that sits, that is actually separate from that particular person or image or statue or, or location. Yeah, it's heady, you know, when mobs uh, and and I, I, I quote here that a number of people in the book who warn against once mobs form, we disindividuate ourselves, you know, and we become capable of doing stuff that outside of the context of a mob, you just think, how, how did I do that? What on earth was I thinking of? How did I get carried away to that point? And uh, and 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 we 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 see this when I talk about the Confederate monuments. I talk about some of the work of Ida B. Wells and and some of the horrific lynchings that that she describes in her in her Red Report and and the way that people would gather together and and witness. And of course, this brings us back to uh, one of the people I'm really fascinated with, both as a historian and as a philosopher, the work of the French. I guess you'd call him a, a post-structuralist, post-modernist, but uh, it's a bit uh, its a bit of a misnomer, Michel Foucault. And, uh, and of course, Foucault, at the beginning of Dis- Discipline and Punishment, talks about the spectacle of punishment and, and gives this incredibly graphic account of a regicide who is brutally executed and how the, the mob that formed around him. And, of course, that, again, is something that runs through this book. You know, when, when the bloodlust is high like that, the difference between... Destroying a statue and killing a person really becomes blurred, and in some instances, of course, in the book, that that in, that indeed happened. And I talk about there's a wonderful American anthropologist called Christopher Burm, S B O E H M, and and he uh, he talks about how our primal instincts, how there's some things that are human universals, like war, ethnocentrism. We always tend to think our culture, our beliefs are the best ones. Blood revenge. You know, um, um, raiding, particularly for for our, our objects of value, and 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 given that most of the raiding was done by men, many of the raiding was to assassinate other men and to capture and rape the women, and these are human universals. And when you see so much of the violence that that surrounds the destruction of statues, you can you can see that. And uh, and uh, but of course, the counter argument to that is somebody says, yeah, well, that's fair enough, but why should we have to tolerate a Confederate statue in the middle of our town? in the middle of our city. 
I mean, W.E.B. Um, uh, uh, du Bois, you know, famously said that if you're going to have a Confederate monument, you you should have on the, the base of it sacred to the memory of those who fought to perpetuate human slavery. You should have those words at the bottom of every Confederate monument. And uh, and then the counter argument to that by those who support those monuments still standing is that, yeah, but it's about heritage, not hate. Yeah, this is this is not we're not glorifying. We don't want the return of slavery, but we're just honoring our ancestors. Right. So how do you square that circle? Well, it's, you know, it's interesting because what you what you mentioned when you're when you're juxtaposing uh, the actual lynchings of black bodies and the erection of a statue of, uh, you know, a statue that's erected to a white Confederate um, general or soldier, whatever, that then um, people want to bring down. Really, in those two things, the difference is is power, right? The, that white people had the power to actually lynch black bodies. Black people have now perhaps for a moment the power to pull down uh, a statue. And, and that I think is, it, that's something I wanted to ask you about because you know the title of your book, A History of Love and Hate in 21 Statues, suggests that the mo- motivation for public commemorations as well as the opposition to the men in, in much of what you've been, you've been uh, talking about, which comes out of your work and your um, obviously you know, it, it, your specific areas of, of uh, examination and expertise, that, that these things can be found first and foremost in a society's emotional relationship to the person or the God for that matter, who's being commemorated. But I found this approach kind of interesting because it suggests that the power dynamics that are at play in the decision-making process aren't really as important as the emotions, but isn't power in essence, the power to define things and the statues reflect that power to basically set the definition of someone as worthy or not, beloved or not, and that, you know, therefore, that perhaps whoever they directed their negative energies towards is therefore sort of powerless in that environment? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I, and I, and I think that the, the differentiation between power and the emotional component that sustains it here is, is, is not a clear, it's not an easy one to make. I, I'll go back here to Michel Foucault, because he is really the philosopher or the historian of power. And, uh, and, and he said, uh, very famously, in an introduction to a book by Gilles Deleuze and Felix Gattari called Antidipus, Capitalism and Schizophrenia. And he, he said, he said, we've got to be aware, he said, the fascism in us all. He said, uh, and he said, the fascism, he said, that causes us to love power to desire the very thing that dominates and exploits us. So here we have a, a link being made between power and veneration, power and love. But but what's important to remember about power, nobody has it. And Foucault is, is unquestionably correct on this. For, for, for Foucault, power just circulates. Nobody owns it. You know, it's a complete myth to believe that, you know, a certain group of people, be they a certain class or a certain gender or a certain race, actually own power. It flows through them, 
and, and it circulates in various historical moments, they will have the capacity to utilize those flows to demonstrate their dominance over subordinate groups. And that's unquestionably the case. Of course, statues are symbols of the dominant dominant culture. But power doesn't always have to be tyrannical. So you can argue that, yeah, okay, in the case of Confederate statues, uh, clearly they are uh, probably the most complex and egregious forms of statues, really. And it was an evolutionary um, biologist called Jerry Coyne, and he came up with what he calls Coyne's dictum. And he said, if you're going to decide which statue should stand or fall, look at the intent behind those who put them up. So intent actually matters. And what people don't realize is most Confederate monuments weren't weren't put up in 1860, you know, that the peak Confederate monument building decade was 1910 to 1920. And and gradually these monuments migrated from where they were placed initially, which was in cemeteries, and they migrated into town squares. And of course, as the decades passed and, and, and you know, Jim Crow laws took place and lynchings took place, there were lynchings at the base of many of these statues and they became symbols of, unquestionable symbols of white supremacy. There's no, I, I think even the most ardent supporter of, of Confederate monuments would struggle to make the argument that they were in anything other than, than symbols of white supremacy. And, um, and so I, I think that, that um, uh, and in that sense, they were symbols of, of course, symbols of a certain type of, of power. But that power isn't uniform. Sophia Nelson, I quoted earlier, a black American journalist, uh, supports the retention of Confederate monuments. She says she deplores the Confederate flag. But when it comes to monuments, she says, no, they should stand, she said, because they're a reminder, she said, of what we are not. They're a reminder of the progress we've made. You know, and, and also she, she says quite correctly, on this point she's correct, when you start removing the most egregious statues, or where do you stop? It's a bit like um, the free speech issue. By all means, look at somebody like Alex Jones, the conspiracy theorist who... who it's like, so we look at him, and, and, and any reasonable person would say, well, he's pretty malevolent. So, okay, we can understand if he's, if he's cancelled. But actually... By pointing to the most egregious, we then we then have what's called concept creep, or what a wonderful study done at Harvard University defined by a team of psychologists as prevalence-induced concept change. That the more the prevalence of something decreases, the more we expand the concept of it to make it look as if there's no difference. So to translate that into, say, discrimination, or um, the more the less discrimination there is, the more we expand the concept of what constitutes discrimination. So it looks as if not only that we're making no progress, but things are getting worse. So, so we have all these complex issues flow into it. And that's another point that, that, um, that, that, that she makes. And she, she also um, um, says, you've got to, if you're going to fight racism, you've got to put it in its context. And this is the context. This was the history. So uh, and other people will say, well, let's leave those Confederate monuments standing, but let's reinterpret them. And people can reinterpret monuments in all sorts of incredibly imaginative ways. The best one I ever saw was a, a Soviet war memorial in Sofia in Bulgaria. Um, and I recommend anybody to look this up. And, and protesters painted over the Russian soldiers as, as, as superheroes. Like There was Superman and Batman and what was Santa Claus. And it's hilarious. And it's a wonderful mechanism to reinterpret a statue. Then, of course, there's people. some people would wipe it off and then they'd put it back on again. So it, these choices are not simple, but we must ask ourselves the quest, two questions before we consider upending 
um, um, that the ground on which we sit. Firstly, who are we to judge? Um, and and I quote in the book, although I'm a humanist myself, I quote the very famous incident from the Gospel of John, where where Jesus is in the town square and the, the priests come up to him and they say, we've caught this woman in adultery. We've caught her in flagrante. You've got to condemn her. We're going to stone her to death. And of course, it's a double bind, because if Jesus says, yes, you must stone her to death, then he can't be doing anything near. He's one of them. But if he says no, well, he could also be stoned to death. So he does a wonderful response, which is let him who is without sin cast the first stone. And which again really echoes Nelson Mandela. It echoes Martin Luther King Jr. And uh, and and so we we firstly have to think well who are we to judge and let us as Foucault you know, tells us to do let us look at our own love of power let us look at how power moves us and let's not divide the world so easily into victims and perpetrators. Because now uh, another person I quote when I talk about the statue of the Jewish composer, although he converted to Lutherism, but the, um, um, Felix Mendelssohn, uh, I quote in there the guy Rabbi Harold Kushner, who who wrote a wonderful book when bad things happen to good people, and he said we are all he said brothers and sisters in suffering, and when we see this other, our own suffering in somebody else and somebody else is suffering in us, it humanizes us. When also we we see other people's intolerance and other people's hate and other people's cruelty, and we are, see ourselves as being capable of the same thing. It humanizes us because we are no different. The people who were, who, who were lynching black Americans under Confederate monuments, the people who ran the gas chambers at Auschwitz, you know, the, 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 the people who were far, far part of Stalin's secret police, the, 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 the Romans who executed so, and, 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 and so many so many Britons and, and, and all the empire builders, how are we so different from them? We have the same brain, the same nervous system, the same genetics. We too are capable of unspeakable horror. And if we want to find a way out of the morass that we're in, we first need to see the fascism inside us all and deal with that first. That means when we act, we will act in a humane way and with the best of intentions and with an understanding that we may not be better than those that we condemn. Well, that's, I mean, it's very eloquently put, but I just, I wonder whether in, um, in being so egalitarian, it does perhaps remove some of that motivation that you sort of spoke about a few minutes ago. Like you, you said that it's very important to understand in our discussion of removing monuments to people or naming of buildings or streets or whatever to, to be thinking of what the motivation was in erecting that to begin with. And, and, and so then I, I guess it, 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 it makes me uh, question whether it's possible to perhaps use that as one of the tools by which we differentiate so that we're not, um, uh, as you say, having concept creep, but rather that we can have a subtlety to our, to our approach. And so if the very reason for the erection of a monument or if the very reason why an institution that has the name of somebody over it, uh, you know, a doorway is there, is on the backs of other people, that perhaps that might be where we say, ah, yes, 
looking at motivation might actually be a way to help us to decide which ones should be renamed or which ones should be brought down. Uh, and I, I love just to circle back to, because I think this sort of connects to it too. I, I love the notion, because I mean, as a historian, I'm, I'm obviously very familiar with the uh, you know, people like Andrew Carnegie and and his uh, his the the the, um, the dichotomy of people like Andrew Carnegie or Colston or Rhodes or any of those. But I love the notion of thinking of their work as virtue signaling because, really, in essence, that's what all of that philanthropic effort was, is that it was simply the virtue signaling of incredibly powerful people. Yeah, that, that's absolutely correct. But the 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 uh, there was a wonderful uh, a book written by a, a, a team of um, uh, biologists. I think they were called uh, Amots and uh, Zahavi and uh, and Avishek Zahavi, and it was called the Handicap Principle. And what they were interested in was they looked at birds. In this case, the Arabian babbler. And they were fascinated by the fact that here is somebody who warns other birds to whom he is not genetically related to and in in the process of doing so risks his life. Why would a bird do that? Uh, But that's because there is status in virtue. And 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 it doesn't matter whether it's Carnegie or the people tearing down the statue of John A. Macdonald in Montreal. Yeah, because when that statue came down, it was beheaded as it fell, and one of the protesters jumped on the head and pretended to urinate on it, and there was all general festivity. And, and, and of course, the, the virtue signal is very strong, and what you're really saying there is, I am nothing like this man. Well, I would question that. Yeah, I mean, whether the statue should stand for, whether it should move, be reinterpreted is one issue. But the key issue is how are we different? And and what we have to acknowledge is not that we, therefore, we never make any change because you have to have some agitation to make change. You know, to get the vote in this country, the suffragettes had to agitate. You know, to break apartheid, there had to be agitation. You know, we, we can't live in a world where there is where, where we all just sit back and wait for change to happen. That's not going to be the case. But what we have now, what we have to be wary of more than anything is utopianism. That by all means, let's agitate for a change in this area or in that area. Let's agitate to have change that everybody has health care, for instance. Everybody has the right to decent health care. That's worth fighting for, right? We don't just sit down and say, well, there's nothing we can do about it. Maybe we're as bad as they are, so we'll just let it pass. So by all means, but but the challenge we have, and this is the way you see things like with um, with the statue of Confucius and these kind of very ideologically driven movements is where they say, let's tear everything down. Let, let's literally rip up the ground under our feet. And out of this, we will have a utopia, what I call a utopia of equity. Well, that is the road to hell. That really is. That is how you open the gates of hell. And if history teaches us anything and biology teaches us anything, is that is the road to hell. But actually, if we want to agitate for specific change, well, let's do it. And and let's not forget, it's those agitations that have led us and the very values of some of the founding fathers, for example, in the United States is precisely what's led us to this position now so that we can look back at them and we can say, well, OK, guys, some of what you were doing then really wasn't great. You were slave owners and that wasn't great. 
But the values, your belief in liberty, freedom of expression, the right of everybody for the pursuit of happiness, blah, 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 is, is what's informing us and allowed us to expand our circle of concern and expand our rights. It is only 50, 60 years ago that in this country, Aaron Turing, who worked at Bletchley Park, who has largely played a huge part in, 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 in decoding many of the, the uh, German messages, was instrumental in helping us win the war in, in, many, in some respects, um, where he had to choose between imprisonment or chemical castration simply because he was a homosexual. It is only in 1967 that homosexuality was made legal in the United Kingdom. It is only in 1973 that homosexuality was taken out of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders as a mental disorder. So, and that is progress. And what's driven that progress is the very values that underpin our society because it allows for that progress, which is why, and I come to the last statue I talk about in the book, Frederick Douglass wrote that's great, Piece, piece in called What to a Slave is the 4th of July. When he, he, he in the vast bulk of that piece is all about it's it, 4th of July is nothing to, to, to a black man, to a black person. It's all about white supremacy. Then he reaches the end and he says, but he said, the American Constitution and those values are the best hope we have of making progress. And he has been proved correct. And I end the book by saying when Frederick Douglass's own statue was taken down, we don't know who did it. And it could have been people from the far right who were moaning and, and protesting about their Confederate monuments being taken down. Or it could have been somebody from the left thinking, how dare he stand up for the American Constitution? And as Frederick Douglass did, give succor and go visit his former slave owner, on his, Thomas Ald, on his deathbed. And, and, and but what Douglass in, and Martin Luther King and Nelson Mandela and all these people inspire us to do is, yes, let's agitate for change. Let's protest. But let's remember that we have a mechanism for gradual, progressive, positive change and the evidence of what's happened. And I gave the example here of homosexuality and, 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 and gay rights. If you look at the movement from the 1950s to now, it's seismic. And what's allowed that is the values that underpin our society. We should be careful before we tear the ground underneath our feet. And I make a distinction between agitating for change and agitating to tear that ground up. Well, and that is a great way for us to, great place for us to end our conversation uh, at the end of the book and uh, at the end of our time. It's been really great uh, talking to you. And um, uh, I, I really uh, found the book very um, thought-provoking and a really uh, interesting. And and also, uh, I, I would like to make sure listeners are aware, a very um, uh breezy read given the 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 heaviness of the of the subject matter i think it's important to kind of to to uh note that it actually uh is um is a big book that you can pick up and put down you don't need to read from start to finish you can look at particular uh figures and statues uh and 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 so it's a a, a very um a very worthwhile uh worthwhile read so thank you, Peter, very much for, uh, for joining me. And thank you very much. I much appreciate it. Thank you.